Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Glenn Mills, anchor and senior political correspondent with ABC4 Utah. We have Amy Donaldson, reporter with Deseret News, and Matt Canham, managing editor of the Salt Lake Tribune. So glad to have you all with us. Big week in politics, big week in the state of Utah. Uh, I wanna get right into a couple of elections. Uh, Matt, we're talking about the 4th Congressional District. Everyone in the state is watching this one. Turns out people all across the country are watching this one. As of the airing of the show, Burgess Owens is up 1,619 votes. Talk about this race. Did you expect this for this point in the election? Well, maybe. I mean, it was definitely within the realm of possibility because this is pretty much where we were two years ago. This district is a conservative-leaning district, but that Democrats have performed well at. This, the areas of this district that are growing, you look at places like Harriman, South Jordan, those population centers lean conservative. So you could see that this could be one where it could get this tight. And then all that outside money and millions and millions of dollars, both parties were pouring in here because they thought it was competitive. So to see it this close, this late, isn't too much of a surprise. Mm -hmm. Amy, what kind of impact did you see this outside money having? Because this is interesting because Burgess Owens was not a well-known name in the state of Utah going into this race. No, I think um, I have a few thoughts on the race, but I, I think absolutely expected it to be this close because of 2018 um, and the differing, differing dynamics. What I didn't know and what I couldn't really figure out was what impact it would have if Salt Lake County was heavily turned out to, for Joe Biden and whether or not that that would help Ben and maybe we would see a little bit of separation, but it turns out to maybe be the opposite. So, because it looks like Trump uh, energized a lot of new voters as well. And so maybe you have a lot of first time voters. I talked to a lot of young voters uh, in this election. Um, a, a lot of them were unfamiliar with both candidates. I think what hurt Ben was Congress not doing some of the things this summer and, and in the fall that they should have done. And maybe that looked like he didn't do as much as he did. And so, I mean, so you couldn't point to some tangible things that he was responsible for, but obviously the Democrats only control one house. Um, so I, I think some of that was, um, but I, I thought the ad blitz uh, actually turned people off. My nephew came to me, he's 22 years old, and he said, uh, which guy should I vote for, but I'm not voting for Burgess Owens because I hate his ads. And so I think that probably there were similar people along that hated both sides' ads. It was, um, I think people were looking for maybe a different option. It was a pretty toxic race. Um, I don't know what you, what, what you do differently when you have outside money coming in and outside packs uh, you know, promoting ads. The weird part of this race before, I, I'd love to get Glenn's opinion on this, is that in my experience, this was the least issue, uh, race <laughs> with the least number of issues I have ever seen. Like there was no issue driving this at all. It was Burgess Owens has some bankruptcies, and Ben McAdams is more liberal than you think. And well, that was, was, there was the, the nuclear testing. That, yeah. that was an and issue. Initially. But initially. really, really yeah, it but was, all of those yeah. 
All of those things were really overweighed by these ads that uh, Matt talks about focusing on just those few little things. And it was interesting to me, Amy, as you said, mentioned the person who said, I'm not going to vote for Burgess because of his ads. Well, how do you look at the ads from McAdams and say any different? So that was a very interesting dynamic. But the one major question coming into this election on the 4th for me was, will the voters that came out in 2018 who really helped Ben McAdams in Salt Lake County come back? And as we're looking at it now, it appears that that was not the case. In precincts that he did really well and there was good turnout, we're not seeing that same turnout from 2018. So that's a key that we're watching in Salt Lake County is uh, those voters from 2018 that were really interested in coming out for the uh, medical marijuana, for Medicaid expansion, for redistricting. Those voters appear to have not come out like they did in 2018. So, so Amy hit that very good point because yeah. if you look at that last election, record numbers of people in Salt Lake County in particular, sometimes registering for the first time in their lives to vote, largely for an issue, which was medical look, marijuana. Yeah, I think the medical marijuana, I think we all acknowledge that helped uh, Ben in 2018 significantly. But if you look at the Salt Lake County votes, they're still skewing towards Burgess Owens. And so I just think there was more energy in amongst the Repub people who vote Republican down line. Now, there were people who were very, I know a lot of Republicans who voted for Biden, but the rest of their ballot was Republican. And so that's why I think you're seeing some schism. People, I think it's going to be interesting to dissect this when it's all done, because it's not, there isn't one thing or one type of voter. And I, I do think it's interesting that you didn't have as high a turnout, um, especially when it came to the late to the, the the ballots were dropped off late. That's that um, that mirrored the rest of the country where Trump voters either voted in person or took their ballot to a drop box the day of because they didn't trust the mail system. And so that's why you saw a lot of we, we've talked about it. Some Democratic women who were ahead in races now are not in, ahead. Yeah. So it's interesting how that played out to Amy's point, Matt, is this, it turns out a lot of those Republicans came later. They didn't mail as early. It happened across the country and in the state of Utah. Mostly those day of those provisional ballots tend to be skewing towards the Republican candidates. Why is that? You know, I think we've seen that in, for a number of years. The one thing I would like to point out is we had great turnout this uh, year, not just in Utah, but throughout the country, and that's a wonderful thing for our democracy. Mm -hmm. But people turn out in different ways, as you point out. Uh, for more liberal people, dropping them off at Dropbox on the first day they possibly could mm -hmm. and taking a selfie and putting it all over social media was the rage. And it looked like for a lot of conservative people, they wanted to either vote in person or were go in there and drop their ballot off. We've seen that in past elections, which is why this happened with Ben McAdams last time. He had a lead, it got tight. Representative Mia Love had a lead, and then he came in and surged at the end. Uh, so this is a pattern we've seen over time. This one, though, with the weird dynamics of 2020, just made it so much more so, uh, that schism of how people vote. Yeah. But newer voters, yeah, you can't predict as well, right? A lot, well, we have a lot of new voters. Sorry, go Glenn. <laughs> I was just going to say, historically, provisionals are going to break for the Democratic candidate, but we've got to wait and see how this happens, because we all know that this year is not business as usual. There are a lot of different dynamics in play, like do 
uh, voters who lean Democratic, were they willing to go out in person to register and to fill out a provisional ballot? And that's what we'll be watching in these latest returns, because that's what we are down to in Salt Lake County, I've been told by the clerk, is provisionals and cures. Mm -hmm. So we may see that break from history. But it's still possible that uh, Ben McAdams could pull this off. Yeah, go finish your thought. Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say, I know a lot of first-time voters came out for the presidential race, and they had no idea what was down ballot. And so I just wonder if you come out for the presidential election, and that's all that's motivating you, maybe you eeny, meeny, miny, mo, mm -hmm. or I don't know, maybe how they decided. Or maybe you go back to what you were raised of Republicans, so you just vote for the Republican or, or third party. I just think, I think the that Joe Biden's candidacy didn't carry more weight in Salt Lake County is interesting. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the Salt one Lake County. We know for sure, one thing we know for sure, though, is that the last couple of days, we expected McAdams to do better in Salt Lake County than what he has done in the returns we've seen. Burgess has outperformed what we figured would happen in Salt Lake County with the returns that we've seen in the last few days. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's still maintaining his lead in the race. Okay, let's talk about the makeup of this district for just a moment, Matt, because this is the question that I'm starting to get. Well, our legislature could change it. They could make this less competitive. Okay, so let's get a prediction. You're predicting now because for the sake of our viewers, every 10 years, we have a chance to redraw these boundaries, right? Uh, we passed a independent redistricting commission um, initiative in our last election cycle. They will convene uh, in February of this coming year to talk about those lines. You're predicting now, Republicans who are in charge will maybe adjust these lines. I think if, if Republicans want to take this fourth district from competitive to not, all you have to do is move the boundaries a little bit. And there's been such growth in northern Utah County, in southern Salt Lake County, that you can do that and make the numbers work. It just has to be a subtle shift. For people who don't know where the 4th District is, it's the west side of Salt Lake County, the west side of Utah County, and parts of central Utah. So you just take- It's a also like Mill Creek though, it's just a yeah. little- But yeah. if you yeah. take yeah. a little yeah. bit of Mill yeah. Creek out, you take a little bit of West Valley out, you don't even have to take a lot. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this, this becomes a, lot, a far easier for Republicans to hold on to. Mm -hmm. You shift, shift that into either the 3rd District, like if you take yeah. Mill Creek and put it in the 3rd District, since Holiday is in the 3rd District, that's the same district as Provo. Uh, John Curtis is going to win that district if you add a little bit mm -hmm. more Democratic vote to it. Mm -hmm. Glenn, if you look at the recent Supreme Court rulings on this very issue, because I know people are talking about this, it's, it's perfectly within the right to adjust boundaries based on party. There are some things you can't do, the, the court has talked about, you couldn't, for example, adjust a boundary based on race or something like that, but on party is an open question, leaving it to the people who are in charge, right? So for the people who are watching right now, how does that play out for our legislature this coming session? Well, it all comes down to this. I mean, I've lived in other states where I've seen the opposite take place, but the party that's in control is going to uh, make these maps and, as Matt uh, alluded to, possibly move them around to benefit their party. This year will be a little bit different, though, because I already mentioned the redistricting amendment or a ballot initiative that was passed last year or in 2018. So that we're going to have this commission, this independent commission, a seven-member commission, and they're going to present three different options to the legislature, but it's not a binding commission. So in the end, it's still going to be the legislature's decision, and it's going to be interesting to me to watch to see if they do go with one of the three options or if they break off and uh, go with their own. But one point I do want to make is I've lived in states that are dominated by Democrats in the state house, and you see the same thing on the opposite uh, 
hmm. arena where <laughs> then Republicans are frustrated by how Democrats are drawing those maps. Hmm. One thing Republicans did in 2010 that I thought was very smart was they focused on local races and they fo focused on uh, you know winning state legislature so they could be in charge of redistricting for this very reason. And I, I know we had uh, uh, legislators on our podcast where we discussed this and they said, Everyone was involved, both parties were involved in the local districting, um, but when it came to the congressional, the four congressional districts, it was Republicans only. Mm -hmm. And so I, w I do welcome the fact that there's this commission. Uh, I, I'm bummed that, it's, that the, we, they passed SB 200 that made it not binding and you don't even have to explain why you deviate or why you don't accept a recommendation. Um, they are political appointees, so that's also you know, who is it going to be and, and how political are they going to be or non-political. So I think there's a lot of questions about it, but um, I think it's a process that people w have become more aware of and mm -hmm. hopefully will be more invested in and it'll be harder to do something really underhanded. You wouldn't, like you said, you wouldn't have to do very much to just make right. it a favorable district. And then the question becomes, do people, do Democrats deserve a district? Do they deserve to have a representative of their own or is this a matter of you know, we don't we don't operate that way. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it goes. This is going to be one that's going to be interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. I want to get to a point that you made a, a moment ago, Amy, too. This is about uh, the coattails of Joe Biden uh, throughout the country, but also in this, the state of Utah. I'm kind of curious about this because when we went into this election, uh, people were talking about this potential blue wave. Turns out maybe it was a, <laughs> a, a, a blue mirage. I think some are talking. Is that is that what happened? Explain why you think that's the case. Um, I think people were focused on president, the presidential race. I think they, uh, you know, I talked to people who didn't even know who their state senator was or their state representative. Um, you know, uh, I had people asking me about the, um, the, the constitutional amendments, mm -hmm. um, very educated people. So I think people were so focused on the presidential race that that's what mattered. That's what they put their time and their energy. Um, that's where they tried to convince their friends yeah, and family. True. And that, and that seemed to be where the battle what battle was and i don't know that um biden's uh, candidacy did much for any democrats in utah mm -hmm. glenn Farrell, your, your thoughts on that fact yeah i think that's right we were expecting this blue wave not only across the or across the country but also potentially here in salt lake county like we saw in 2018 and we just didn't see that. And I think another thing to that, as Amy points out, this was about the presidential race. And obviously, as we take a look at the numbers across the country and in Salt Lake County, where we've seen the later numbers really benefit Republicans on the state level, the congressional level, and even the county level, they've really gained ground or even taken over some of these races. They were energized, Republicans were, and again, it is about the presidential race, and they turned out not only in Salt Lake County, across the state, but across the country as well. When you Don't you think some of it is voting against Trump? I mean, I, I heard this all the time. This is not I, I, from a lot of people who've never voted for a Democrat. I'm I gonna... think there's two things that happened. One, we thought there was a blue wave because polling had problems. Mm -hmm. And for the second <clears throat> uh, election in a row, it, underestimated Republican interest in states throughout, and that wasn't just the presidential race, it was in Senate races, it was in Utah polling, all of it underestimated Trump's strength and Republican strength. So we had the wrong expectation coming in. I do think there are a number of Republicans who divorced Trump from the Republican Party. And I think 
that's unusual in our politics, but does make sense when you follow this president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there was a Trump loyalty and then there was a Republican loyalty. And I think what we didn't, what pollsters, I would say we and I am not a pollster, what they didn't factor in was people were still going to be loyal to their party. Mm -hmm. they di this wasn't a rejection of Republican, no, no, uh, no. the Republican Party. It was a re in some, the people who did cross over, it was a rejection of, mm -hmm. of but, but Glenn, talking and about if this. if you take a look at the, well, if, if you take a look at the state numbers, that's exactly what we saw as well. Uh, Jason, last time I was on the show, I made the argument for why President Trump would fare better in Utah in 2020 than he did in 2016. And we did see that, but 58% of the state vote right now is where he stands. And you would expect a Republican incumbent to do better than that. If you take a look at the statewide offices, every single one of the Republicans got more votes than President Trump in the state of Utah. And John Dougal, the state auditor who got the most, was somewhere around 130 to 140,000 more than the president. Governor-elect uh, Cox was somewhere around 45,000 mm -hmm. votes more than the president. So just like we're saying, people came out Republicans, maybe they didn't vote for the president, but they still voted down ticket. Mm -hmm. yeah. But Matt, this didn't translate for some very local races, which is interesting. No. This still became really, really close for some long-held Republican positions in our House and in our Senate. Talk about a couple of those really quickly. Yeah, we have some interesting uh, or legislative districts in Kearns and West Valley in Sandy, where Democrats have been pining to win these seats to expand their caucus, and they thought for sure this was the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. they even they had and in as many, fairness, on election night, it looked good. Well, they even <laughs> had a list of eight to ten seats yeah. they thought they could go after, and now yeah. we're down to about three. Mm -hmm. And they might win; they'll probably win at least one of them in Kearns. It looks like that one's pretty solid. But the other two, I mean, their candidates are down less than a hundred votes with these provisionals left to uh, count. So. The Democrats could still win those races, it's possible. Mm -hmm. um, but just watching their leads whittle over time, it has to be pretty discouraging if you're a Democrat and it's all I can. Mm -hmm. Particularly on election another, night, it looks so another positive. Interesting, yeah, another interesting point of the state house races that's on the flip side of that is we have two Democratic incumbents who are in what we would consider swing districts. One would be Senate District 8, the other House District 32. Senator Reby is on top uh, comfortably she's going to win that race and she's been ahead the whole time same thing with representative suzanne harrison in house district 32 in sandy so we have these two democrat incumbents in potentially swing seats who are cruising to victory mm -hmm. okay let's switch gears for just a moment amy we've got to get to the big news this week on covid 19 because a lot has changed in utah because of the governor's uh, announcement and the orders he's put into place i, I think but many has it changed <laughs> Well, let's talk about that because yeah, we, we yeah. hit a record number yesterday, yeah. just under 4,000 cases yeah. uh, in, in Utah just on, on Thursday. Uh, and, but the governor had, did, you know, we all got that alert on our phone, which I've never seen anything like that, calling us to watch a, a broadcast. Sunday night, 9.30. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was an unusual time. Um, I, I had some questions about that, about the timing of it and, and the strategy of it, um, which made it seem more urgent and which made me think, why wouldn't we have done this earlier? My, I guess my biggest issue with uh, the list of changes, which, you know, so they suspended um, all extracurricular activities except the state, the high school state football playoffs, and then they 
later said club sports could operate as businesses. So if you can have a volleyball practice where you can social distance or a ballet class where you can social distance and wear a mask, then you can run that business. Um, but like sports that are in the high school and in affiliated with the school are, are shut down, but we're leaving bars and gyms and restaurants open. And so I wondered if you're asking kids to make a sacrifice, um, that's going to be undermined by what we're allowing adults in our society to do. And I think it's by and large the adults who have shown they are not capable of doing the right thing for the right reasons. They, they need um, a mandate. We talked a little bit about why you would wait so long. I don't know. I think this this entire plan about testing teachers and testing athletes and if we're going to open things up who's going to have access to a test and, mm -hmm. and a rapid test especially um, that should have been something we were discussing in in August when we when we reopened everything and we were not hitting numbers there that we said we wanted we were talking about hitting you know 400 and now we're almost at 4,000 and the real travesty is that um, the, the, our, our healthcare workers are completely discouraged and, and just, um, it's uh, to me an unconscionable thing that we let it go on this long because the deaths are, everything, the wave moves differently when it comes to hospitalizations and deaths. We had nine deaths yesterday. You're gonna see it be in double digits for a couple of weeks and it's gonna be really sad. Mm -hmm. Glenn, what do you think the tipping point was? Amy said probably should have happened a while ago. What do you think happened that got the governor to this point? Well, I think he got to the point where he saw he has no other choice. He tried to put this off as long as possible and plead with the people of Utah, come on, let's come together, let's do this. It's something simple we can do to help out those healthcare workers and maintain capacity levels where we wanna be at the hospital, but it just wasn't working. We started seeing cases rise more and more up to the point where yesterday, as you mentioned, uh, 3,900, more than 3,900. And the bad part about that is we don't see the impact of that on our hospitals until two weeks later. So I think it just got to the point where he really wanted to not go down that road, but he saw it's not working and he had to do something about it. Let me ask you guys, do you think though there might've been legislative pressure uh, or business pressure um, because the economic shutdown was so painful and it didn't seem like they were very well equipped to deal with that, that, that it wasn't just about what Governor Herbert wants to do because it's clear to me that Dr. Dunn, our state epidemiologist, was encouraging this for quite some time. Um, but do you think there was p pressure from legislator leaders or Absolutely. From business owners? Yeah. So, so get to this yeah, point, I think, Matt. I think I'm sorry, go ahead, across go ahead. the board, there's been pressure. Across the board from the, le you know, the legislature, constituents, we have people in elected office in our county that are now uh, traveling with security detail because of threats that they have received from the way they have responded to the coronavirus. So it's widespread pressure. I have no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. Matt, Matt, some have argued that uh, perhaps it just waited till right after the election. All right. Well, it did. Um, whether the election was the driving factor or not, um, there's a couple things that also, if you're going to do a two week ban or two week try to like pause, it ends right before Thanksgiving. So there's pressure from the holidays, there's pressure from elections. And while the governor says the election did not play a role, he did acknowledge that politics this year has played a role in how we've responded to the coronavirus. And honestly, how could it not? But, but what I think what he was referring to is the fact that we made masks political. 
We may we it make became, everything political, the, but in an but, election but, year but, we uh, make everything even more political. But I mean, being asked to wear a mask by your doctor normally would be like, oh, my doctor told right. me to do this, so I should do it, right? But this year it became. I, I talked to business owners in May when I was coming back from the Navajo Nation who said we're afraid to tell our customers to wear masks because we feel like they won't support us and we need to survive. Right. What but do we do? I do think that uh, the governor's actions were driven by the holidays, driven by maybe a little bit of politics, but I also think they were driven by. Utah's public health officials and doctors who were getting increasingly mm -hmm. frustrated, who were speaking out, who were calling them out by name on social media and saying, do something. You have to do something. If you're the governor, you don't want to be the governor in charge when you have to bring in refrigerated trucks to act as morgues because you didn't do anything. So, And that's happening in El Paso. And that's right happening now. in multiple yeah. other states, and it might <laughs> happen here. Mm -hmm. So I think he had felt he had to take action, but as Glenn said, he waited to the last possible moment. Mm -hmm. So all of this, of course, is going to be to transfer over to our governor-elect, Spencer Cox. Uh, so Glenn, uh, I know you're having conversations with him in his office. What kind of efforts are they going through right now to handle this transition when there's going to be almost no time to try to get up to speed or even put a cabinet together? Well, one of the things they did right off the bat was put together that transition team, and it was a team of rivals, so to speak, a lot of uh, formal rivals of uh, Spencer's in the governor's race, and that seemed to draw a lot of approval from people on both sides. So right now that uh, transition team is reaching out and and trying to fill those positions uh, for the administration because as you mentioned they don't have much time moving forward. Mm -hmm. He has the advantage he though of being the lieutenant governor for seven years and understanding the apparatuses of our state government. It's not like someone who came from like the business world into being governor and has and to figure it out. And he was also the head of the coronavirus task yes. force so how much of this is him? It well, doesn't, doesn't appear that that task force has done much for months. No, but, um, so, I mean, he did have a title, did for though. months, but he did, but he was involved in right. ramping up and, and in, in strategizing what's going to be our strategy. So how much of this is Spencer and how much of it is uh, Governor Hopefully Herbert? it's a bit of both right now because we do need this transition to be seamless as we go. The mm -hmm. coronavirus is not going to end when Spencer Cox takes the oath office. What? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's true. Is, is this the number I one? Can tell you oh, one thing, thing. I can tell you one thing for sure. The transition's going a lot more smoothly in the state of Utah than it is in the White House. <laughs> Glenn, is, Glenn is uh, absolutely right there about that. But, but it is interesting to see how the, even the White House is, is starting to put together their own, or Joe Biden is, before the White House, putting together his own transition team right. as it relates to COVID-19. And a coronavirus team. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your great insights today, great conversation, so many issues we're going to continue to watch. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.